0: Hello, I'm Charlotte Leslie. I'm the director of CMEC, and I'm speaking to you in a special CMEC podcast from the IISS Manama Dialogue in Bahrain. The International Institute of Strategic Affairs holds an annual security dialogue, and this is the 17th time that this has been held. This one is particularly special since. This is the first time we've come together after COVID in person to discuss the key issues of the day. And the issues of the day are very pressing. This year, we're taking a particular look at the Indo-Pacific issue, which is not something that perhaps in the UK we always think of when discussing the Middle East. However, it's very apparent that this dialogue, this is a key issue. And following the US and the UK's withdrawal from Afghanistan, people are asking, can we trust the West in the way that we used to? Does withdrawal mean lack of interest? Many of the representatives here will be saying that's not the case. I'm here to speak to a number of people who are here to listen and to give their views at the Manama Dialogue. I'm delighted to be here at the Manama Dialogue with Tobias Elwood MP. Now, Tobias is currently Chair of the Defence Committee and has been a Middle East Minister. So, Tobias, you're a regular at the Manama Dialogue. Uh, What can we expect to see being the main themes in this year's Manama
1: Dialogue? Well, I think the international community perhaps is a bit bruised after Afghanistan, retreating from there. Where do we go? What do we do to keep our uh, ever-complex world uh, stable? And so. the the themes that have been coming up here is South China Sea, what's happening there, but also some of the fires that continue to burn in the Middle East, problems with Yemen, for example, where uh, Lebanon is going, we've got Tunisia as well. So it's very good that we're bringing people together, particularly after COVID, when we weren't able to do so, and uh, to start looking at these challenges that we're facing.
0: And do you think post withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan of uh, the US and the UK, there's a job to do for the West to reassert its interest and uh, commitment to the Middle East? You know,
1: that's exactly right, because uh, we now realise there was no real need to leave Afghanistan from the Americans' perspective. It got caught up in the American election cycle. But it did give the impression that perhaps the Americans didn't want to lead, from a NATO perspective, that we didn't have the patience to see things out in Afghanistan. What does that mean for all the other responsibilities and obligations and challenges that we face? Uh, So it was good to hear Lloyd Austin, the Defence Secretary, actually Uh, recommit himself to the security of the Middle East and and wider as well, working with partners for some of the solutions, and that's exactly where we need to go.
0: Now, many people might say a dialogue like this could go on on Zoom. What would you say is the main benefit of being able to meet not pixel to pixel but person to person?
1: Oh, it isn't so much what happens in the main chamber, the big speeches, which are, are, of course, very, very useful. It's actually the bilateral meetings. You mentioned I've been here a few times. I've been able to catch up you know, and, and relate and, and, and uh, share ideas, also represent Britain, if you like, in a, a small uh, R representing, to me- explain to them what's going on <laughs> with British politics uh, and our commitment, the British commitment, to want to, uh, to participate. Uh, we have the reach, the uh, uh, perhaps the, uh, the trust, the engagement, the history, uh, to be able to help shape the world to become a better place. We need to continue to do that.
0: Tobias, thank you. I know you've got a lot of meetings to get to. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Bari'a Madin. I'm Lebanese-British,
2: I've been living in the UK for 42 years. I come to the Manama Dialogue since its inception. I I think it's a good opportunity for me as a writer and journalist to meet people, to also be able to ask questions, and mind you, many times you don't learn a lot, but off the record and, and the side meetings are extremely, extremely valuable. And also, I
0: do love Bahrain and its people. I was going to ask you, Baria, for those who have not been to the Manama Dialogue, what do you think is its key value? We we live in a very
2: divisive world. We live in a very polarized world, as you can see, in a dangerous world. And I think uh, never in in the history of mankind there's been a a need for dialogue and for talking and for understanding each other. Uh, And this this meeting gives the opportunity for many people coming from Asia, from uh, uh, England, from America, from the West at large, Europe, all Europe is here also from the Middle East, specifically the mm-hmm. Gulf countries, for them to meet and to talk. And, and as you see, always people standing together, uh, people are not shy to introducing each other and, and, and also to talk and understand. Uh, I find it extremely useful uh, as a journalist, but also as a human being to, to uh, add value to my knowledge
0: and understanding of the others. Absolutely. And this year in particular, we've got quite an Indo-Pacific leaning towards the, the focus of the dialogue, haven't we? Absolutely, we
2: do. And I think it's extremely, again, very valuable. There there is lots of turbulences in this region, as you know. And unfortunately, Iran, while it could be the best neighbor, uh, the best friend, it plays a very dangerous uh, role. It has rendered countries like Lebanon, Yemen, Iraq, uh, almost as failed states. I mean, Lebanon is uh, just on the verge. Yemen is a failed state. Syria is a failed state. So uh, anywhere you see see Iran, uh, you see conflict, you see poverty, you see really militancy, and I think uh, you know the, the, these dialogues make us uh, Pose questions from the leaders of the West. And, and it's a partnership. The world has to be based on partnerships. And I think, as we heard today in the morning, the American defense minister uh, very well put it this way America alone cannot do it. I wish and, uh, th- there was more partnership on the world stage. But this region needs all the partnership. And there is an openness, new openness, and understanding between this region and Asia at large. And, before, it was only America was the partner. Now there is openness. America, of course, and Europe, uh, and Britain, Great Britain. Uh, nowadays, there is more uh, leaning towards Asia, specifically China, Japan, etc. And I think this is useful. I think the world needs to work together. And, and I think this region
0: should be advised uh, to, be, to have openness towards other powers. Can I ask you something and you don't need to give a diplomatic answer after what some might say was lack of judgment in 2001 um, and in 2003 with the invasion of Iraq then what some might say was a display of indecision in not intervening in Syria in 2013 and then the consequences in the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan in 2020 which some might 2021 which some might see as a sort of weakness. Why should people in the region still trust the West to be devil's advocate? Yes. Well, I'm a journalist, so I'm not a diplomat,
2: so I'm never diplomatic, really, if you read my columns. I don't think in my lifetime I've seen mistrust in America the way it is. And the reason why is many. There is this feeling that, that it's America who's begging Iran to come to the table, begging Iran to behave, uh, begging, you, you know, <laughs> if you like, favors from Iran. It looks like from this region, it looks like Iran is the master and, and America is, is, is the, on the opposite side. I, I grew up in an American school, went to the American university in Beirut. And I have full faith, I have family in the States. But unfortunately, I cannot at all say that I do trust everything the defense minister said this morning because on the ground it's not what it is we see uh, Iran, every single day, almost interfering in America's uh, actions, militarily. They hit them in, in Syria. They, they, they contain ships in, in, in the Hormuz Strait. They're really bad, they're, they're, as I said, what they do in, in Lebanon and, and Iraq and, and Syria and, and in Yemen. And, and if they can more, they, they try to interfere in Bahrain. Luckily, they, they, they couldn't. And we don't see any decisive action coming from from the Americans, uh, which is unfortunate. And w- that's why people in this area don't really uh, trust uh, trust the Americans. I do hope we are wrong because we need them. It's the natural alliance. It's the alliance that we all grew up with, an alliance with the West. We feel we are more uh, gravitated towards the West, more than Asia or China or, or any, any other power. Let's see, they have to prove themselves. Uh, the Houthis hit Riyadh, they hit airports and, and Abha, they, and what did the Americans do or the British or anybody else? Nothing. Just words, words, words.
0: So you're saying there's a real need for, for the West to re-demonstrate its commitment through actually getting stuff done in the region as opposed to abstract nouns and words? Absolutely. They need to be more serious and they need to prove it. You see, I'm sure maybe you're like me,
2: you receive so many statements coming from different and and honestly uh, blah 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 this is the 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 word now everybody uses so it's not only the environment that's blah 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 blah, but it's also the the, the politics I'm sorry to say that I would like to say something else but it's not what we are living
0: Mm. Can we talk about Lebanon very briefly Sure Sure. You're a uh, Lebanese you're a Lebanon expert Um, things are very difficult in Lebanon at the moment Mm. for people who've not been to Lebanon recently and it's not always in the news can you you give us a description of what's going on and what the key challenges are and the dynamics at play? Lebanon is a country, I would say, if it did not exist, we
2: should make it. It's a wonderful place where you have all sorts of ethnic People living there. Also, you have all sorts of religions there, and the melange, the melange is beautiful and lovely, and it demonstrates what we want to see in the whole world. Unfortunately, since 1982, since the creation of Hezbollah, uh, and these are very powerful proxies. It's it's really the diamond, and 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 if you like, uh, in Iran for, for them, because they they have demonstrated that what they did with the Houthis, with the Hajj al-Sha They run the show for Iran and its actions, I must say evil actions in all these countries. So we have a country within a country before, but now we have one country which is the Hezbollah country. We have a very weak president and a son-in-law that runs his show for him. So you have the alliance between the Maronites and part of the Shias, not all Shias, are Hezbollah. Increasingly, people are leaving the Hezbollah alliance simply because they are finding out it's not what it used to be. It was telling the Lebanese, we are here to defend you and to to, to defend your dignity against Israel. We have seen that's not the case. Indeed, it's quite the opposite. So, nobody believes in them that they're the party of Muqawami of or, or anything like this. Quite the contrary. Of course, they engage in all sorts of drug related issues, on terrorism issues around the world. And I'm sorry that, that countries in the West don't name them by name. So, we have seen today the defense minister talk about ISIS and the evil of ISIS. I'm not sure Al Hashd al shaabi PMU or PMF in Iraq, are not as evil. They should engage in getting rid of the PMU, PMF, or Hezbollah in Lebanon, and Houthis, and and also all the proxies, all sorts of proxies in in Syria. In the same manner, even more, because these are more numerous, and, and they spread around. If we do not take stock very soon of all this, we are going to see countries fall one by one uh, to more poverty, to more despair to more and I, I must add, probably terrorism it 's what drives terrorism in, in these countries it 's when people feel the injustices and and the indignities that the Lebanese are feeling every single day. I tell you, the Lebanese are fed up. 40% of doctors have left the country. 33% of uh, nurses have left the country. Judges want to be teachers in the Gulf countries because they don't believe in the future. So we, we are emptying our country from its most valuable assets. And the country is being disintegrated from within, thanks to Hezbollah. And Hezbollah doesn't care less. Its, its allegiance is not to the Lebanese state. They, they are Iranian first, and then maybe Lebanese. Maybe yes, maybe no. So it's a very serious situation. Uh, same, I should say, in Iraq. Uh, I am publishing a book very soon about uh, Iraq. It's called The Militia State. And it talks uh, about the origins of these militias and, and states very, very, very clearly uh, how Iran, uh, how Iran is, is making countries like Iraq
0: disintegrate into absolute chaos. So, in a sense, you're saying that we we are very aware of Sunni militia, like ISIS and Daesh, but we have a bit of a blind spot on Shia
2: militia. Yes. ISIS is evil. You see, it's all coming from 9-11. Everybody thought, oh, it's those Sunnis. They have Daesh and they have Qaeda and they have... Well, these are evil. ISIS is evil. Al-Qaeda is evil. But so are the Hashd al so are Hezbollah, so are the Houthis in Yemen, and so are all the proxies in, in Syria. It's difficult to name them, there are so many. The, the idea is the same, it's to buy influence for Iran. It's to send all this mayhem and destruction. Iran, the Iranian regime doesn't care about its people, doesn't care if their people go hungry or or if they're not educated or they die from COVID, little do they care, okay? There's no God in the world that tells you to do what Iran is doing in in this part of the world. God is about goodness, it's not about evil.
0: Baria, tell us about your book. When can we expect it to come out? When can we read it? Oh, lovely. Uh, yes, it's, it's coming out at the end of,
2: of, of February. It's published by Gilmash, and it's going to be launched at Rusi And I, I have many other launch areas. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to have one in Bahrain, or more than one in London, and uh, in, in the Emirates, and, and other. I wish I could do it in Lebanon, but it's not happening. This is the first book of its kind. There has been many books about ISIS. There has been many, many books about different militias. And about Hezbollah indeed, but not even one about about, uh, the militia state in in Iraq, about the proxies
0: in Iraq, and there's many of them. And remind us of the title? It's called Militia State. Look forward to reading it. Barriet, thank you so very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
3: Hi, my name is Roddy Drummond. I'm the British ambassador to Bahrain, and I've been here for just over two years.
0: Roddy, we've just had, and I may call you Roddy, is that all you right? You may, of course. <laughs> Thank you. We've just had um, at least a day and a half of extremely interesting time at the Manama Dialogue. Can you just outline what the relevance and the importance is of the Manama Dialogue taking place here in Bahrain with the IISS, that's the International Institute for Strategic Studies, yeah. for the UK?
3: So IISS are, of course, a very well-respected UK-based organisation, but they are able here in Bahrain to bring people together together from across the Middle East, and for this particular conference, there's a lot of themes of connections to Asia and how we should be thinking about regional security, not just for the Middle East per se and its sort of traditional issues, but how we should bring in some of the non traditional issues, the linkages to further east. And that, of course, is very relevant to us in the UK and the British government, where we're thinking about the integrated review. and and how we do things differently over this next decade.
0: For listeners who might not know what the integrated Review is, can you just outline what that is?
3: Sure, so that's uh, about a year old uh, now, and that sets out what UK foreign security, defence and development policy should be over this next uh, period, over the next uh, four years I think it is, which tries to pull together all of the the different objectives and lines of action across all bits of the government, and brings in for the first time some of the the new areas of uh, that we need to be paying attention to. So things like AI, things like cyber, things like space, things like uh, how we need to get economic policy, climate change, uh, all those things, and how we how we should be dealing with these for the UK, how we engage with the world to get the best results.
0: Do you think there's an extent to which there is an element of competition for attention of the Middle East um, for them pointing eastwards? versus the more traditional direction of westwards, and if so, how do you think we manage that to reassure the Middle East that we are still, even post-Afghanistan, reliable, trusted historic partners?
3: Yeah, no, there is clearly competition. There are new actors here. This is, uh, the Middle East is a place where uh, global rivalries come together. And there's a lot of, you know, the economic lines of activity do point east. You know, trade with China, trade with other parts of Asia, is large and is growing faster than than trade with some bits of the West, uh, including Europe. So all these things do come together, and the the, the countries of the region that we're engaging with here, and we're all able to engage in this intensive two-day conference, are thinking about these things and thinking about what do they get from the West, what is, it? What is the, the Western approach to things, and they're pressing us, yes, they are um, asking us to do different things, looking at things in different ways, they are looking for reassurance in some areas, so yeah, a lot of, lot of competition around.
0: You mentioned cyber as being one of the new fronts of defence, how much difference do you think it makes being able to talk to people as people not pixels when we've had two years apart with Covid?
3: Oh, it's absolutely huge. It's great here in Bahrain where things have really opened up in the last couple of months since the summer. They've really managed to squash Covid and get well ahead with vaccinations and then no boosters as well. And to start to be able to do events face to face, you can sense the, the real emotion and the energy when people are coming together. had an event, my, uh, my Garden, the other day where people hadn't seen each other except on Zoom for, for two years and uh, there were hugs and it was very, very emotional. And then people were getting into the projects that they have been developing you know, during periods of seclusion or lockdown or whatever, where they couldn't travel internationally. So, you know, there's definitely a rising trend of physical face-to-face events which are, you know, commercial, sporting, educational, in this case, security and defence and foreign policy and a huge hunger to get together and, and work these things out, because you can you can keep ties going through online activity. That can be really useful, and we'll probably use it more than before, but when it comes to things that you need to develop trust or start new ventures, you need to be face-to-face, and, and we are getting back to that, and it's great.
0: And I guess in an era where you're never quite sure digitally who's listening, that's more important than ever before. As British ambassador here in Bahrain... I've seen you very busy going to thousands of meetings over the last 24 hours. How important is it for you to have so many representatives from, from so, not only the Middle East but so many parts of the world here in one place at one time?
3: I think it's really important because they do bring different perspectives. We've heard that from some of the, the senior ministers from Asian countries who've come here. They've given a very different perspective on some of the, some of the security challenges and other challenges um, facing this region. from people who have been dealing with it for a long time, we need to be conscious of the risks of groupthink, so having that kind of challenge is great. It's been great also having younger people engaged. We've got the, uh, the Manama Young Leaders Forum, which has been developing young leaders from the GCC countries and Jordan and Egypt and Morocco. And, you know, I have to say, this year and the last couple of years, the best questions, the most challenging questions to the most senior people are coming from the youngsters. It's great. They don't have a filter. They don't, they don't ask the safe question. They'll ask the, the challenging question. They'll imply that you know, they don't trust the minister's answer. And that's great because we need to encourage that culture of inquiry and challenge and develop the youth of this region and our own youth and so on, get them engaged together because foreign policy, security, to defence must not be an elite activity. It's got to engage our own people, people here, everywhere.
0: And I guess if you're looking to the future it can't be... Dare I say, it, us lot, yesterday's people? Uh, no, to no,
3: absolutely <laughs> not. No, no. I mean, you know, particularly when you're dealing with things like climate change, and you're talking about net zero by pick a date, 2040, 2050 whatever. I might be checking out by twenty fifty, uh, you know, being a man of a certain age. But it matters to my kids and, their, and my grandkids, and and the people we we've, we've heard from at the Manama Dialogue in the last couple of days.
0: And just before we finish, this is probably on a quite a personal note, it's been amazing to see so many women from the Middle East and the region yes. taking part. There's a yes. certain perception that Middle Eastern women are mousy, and you and I both know that's not true, nope. but I think the first question of the plenary session today was asked by a Saudi woman.
3: Yes.
0: Are you seeing more of, of, more of women taking the front line um, in, in uh, Middle Eastern politics as, as time moves on?
3: It's definitely happening. I mean, it's, there's still a long way to go. We want to see in in different fora more of that happening. But there's a real strong spirit here. We've had a lot of stuff uh, over this last couple of years where we, it's very easy to get a forum together. We put them in our own ministers in front of it, and uh, you know, they do find it quite challenging sometimes. But the women here in all fields are, are starting to break those glass ceilings and have the ideas and vision to do things differently, and that's great. And I know that's also part of vision of things in Bahrain, we're seeing that in a lot of the changes and and promotions across government in the last year or so. Again, it's talent and women, younger folk is being rewarded. So there's a way to go, but it's it's moving in the right direction.
0: I'm going to ask you one final question since I've got you here. The Abraham Accords, that was fairly unthinkable even a few years ago. How has that changed your role? Because it certainly changed the, the regional outlook.
3: Yeah, no, I think it's it's fantastic, and I think it really is making us look at things in different ways. It's a learning process for all sides, and we've been encouraging that, working with both sides here in Bahrain and Israel and so on to encourage people to get together and move things forward. There's a lot of learning to do, I would say, in both sides, but only by opening up the flights, getting people to move, think about business ventures, think about scientific collaborations, can you find the, the things forward. We're open to look at where we're doing stuff, for example, UK-Israel, we've got a lot of things going on with that. If some of those can become trilateral with Bahrain or with the Emirates, we're, we're open to that. So, no, I think it's, it, it is opening up new vistas of collaboration. And again, we had more of that both in the corridors and the margins of that, but in the conference of, uh, you know, in the last couple of days in Manama. So, uh, no, it's, uh, it's, it's really exciting.
0: Thank, I know you're very, very busy. Thank you so much for spending the time to talk to us.
3: Always welcome, Charlotte. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you. I'm Mina Alarebi. I'm the editor-in-chief of The National, and I'm based out of Abu Dhabi. Mina, thank you very much for
0: joining us for the CMEC podcast. Um, you must have been to a lot of Manama dialogues. What do you think this, the 17th, is really about, and what's the context in which this dialogue takes place?
4: Well, it's interesting because of course, this is the first in-person Manama dialogue after COVID-19 stopped most of us seeing each other. So there's a real sense of excitement of people just being able to meet face-to-face and also speak comfortably because most people are now nervous about having a phone call call and talking about serious uh, security matters in case somebody else is listening in. So that's the most immediate impression you get. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, This is the first high-level security meeting in the region between ministers, diplomats, journalists, analysts, after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the 15th of August debacle, frankly. And so it's a moment to reflect about what is the U.S. thinking, whether it's strategic priorities and more widely the West. And it's a moment also to listen from, to listen to, sorry, uh, U.S. officials. This has now been year one of the Biden administration. So you've had the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, giving the the opening address uh, this morning. And... It was interesting to hear what they were, they were setting out as priorities, and he listed four threats. The first being the pandemic, the second being the climate crisis, the third being terrorism, and the fourth being Iran. And of course, Iran was the only country that was singled out because it does represent such a threat here. So it was interesting to hear that from the U.S. at a time when, of course, you've also had the U.S. envoy to Iran here, Rob Malley, who's spent quite a bit of time in the region recently. At first, he wasn't really coming to the region or engaging as much. He's been engaging the region before the expected talks with the new Iranian administration. And so my takeaway from Manam Dialogue this year is really to hear from the Americans. They're trying to reassure people, not only in the Gulf, but those who have strategic interests in the Gulf, that they are serious about the security of the Gulf. The message from all U.S. officials has been that President Biden will not allow Iran to have a nuclear weapon, but there is very little substance on how President Biden will stop Iran from getting that nuclear weapon.
0: How much work do you think the US and the West more broadly has in rebuilding trust after what I think most people would describe as the August 15th debacle?
4: The US and more widely the West have a lot of work to do to try to rebuild trust. And it's not just trust in terms of sentiment, it's also the idea of competence. There is a sense of huge incompetence, frankly, from the U.S. and more widely the West in seeing how quickly everything unraveled in Afghanistan on a policy decision that was made you know, over a year ago. So it's no surprise that the policy decision was made, but it was how it was actually implemented. And that is going to take a lot of work and it will take a lot more than statements. I mean, we weren't even hearing statements of reassurance until recently. Now you've got the statements, but the statements alone won't cut it. Do you think that one of the benefits of a dialogue like this is
0: that in formal diplomatic situations, often a sense of politeness and formal diplomacy masks the truth of what people are actually thinking about what's going on and criticisms that they might have that can be better expressed in informal one-to-ones at a dialogue like this?
4: The strength of the dialogue is that it has informal settings and that people can meet after, you know, the formal sessions and, and on the sidelines and so forth. But also that it's not just the foreign ministers or the defence ministers or the intelligence chiefs. You've also got diplomats, journalists, analysts, people who influence the thinking, who can communicate it, but can also give some of the context to wider circles, which is what makes the Manama Dialogue quite unique. It's very focused on the security dynamic, but it doesn't just bring uh, the top level officials together. It brings a, a slightly wider circle of people to try to hammer out new ideas, new approaches. And that is something that we couldn't do over Zoom during the pandemic. So that's definitely one of the strengths of being able to do this in person also.
0: And if you had an audience with Western policymakers um, through this podcast, Mm -hmm. what would you say are the key elements of rebuilding relationships and rebuilding trust in a post-Afghanistan world?
4: I would say first is understand the ramifications of what happened in Afghanistan and the fact that it comes after a number of other missteps and mistakes in the region. So it was or, the trust deficit was already there, and now it's really it's really ramped up. So that's the first: is to to appreciate the seriousness of the situation. The second is that the West needs to communicate what its interests actually are, because there's a lack of clarity of what the priority is. If suddenly. We had the United States find that the Taliban are people they can actually work with, communicate with, negotiate with. What does that mean about others in the region that have actually, you know, picked up arms, have worked hard to destabilize nation states and everything? What are Western interests today? So I think that, you know, define them and articulate them properly. And then third is actually take steps and measures to show that you are committed to the security of the region. And it can't just be oh, we'll send, you know, a few officials to speak, and then they leave two, three days later. There has to be actual investment, physical presence, um, and understand what are those elements that are destabilizing the region, and most importantly, the proliferation of weapons, but also militias. And that is the biggest concern in the region today, Iranian-backed militias, be it in Yemen, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, and that to show that that is an equal concern, if not more, than the nuclear proliferation issue.
0: Minnara Rabi, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me.